0: Little sensation of being under attack when they all come down. So, you'll want to get out your sermon outline. It says A Better Suffering on it. I know how excited you are about that title. Our passage this morning comes to us from Hebrews chapter 2, the last half of the chapter. And uh, so I encourage you to turn there to Hebrews 2, starting at verse 10. You can look on in your outline, turn in your Bibles, and listen carefully as this is God's Word. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. It's possible, Lord, that we can read your word and miss its comforting truth, its saving truth for us, maybe because we're distracted. We're thinking about other things. Maybe because we're so troubled, we can't see straight. We can't think straight. We can't even listen because we're so preoccupied with the things that burden our hearts. Lord, especially if there are... There are people here this morning who are struggling with that, with their own circumstances, are so overwhelming, they can't hear or listen to you, I pray, that by your Holy Spirit you would block out all the noise of life so they can hear the word of life and can be restored. Bless the hearing of this word, and so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit you would press it home, and make our hearts believe. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. How many of you remember the Matrix Trilogy? Most of you. Um, it's a remarkable series of films that just sort of stunned everybody when they were released all the way back in 1999 and 2003. Yes, they're that old. And they were unique. They combined science fiction and philosophy, and multiple religious themes, all tied up with some very intense action. Not to mention, they provided preachers with hundreds of sermon illustrations, including this one. Today's scene came from the third movie, Matrix Revolutions, and in this scene, Neo, who's the lead character, is facing his nemesis, Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith is the embodiment of evil. And he finally has Neo down and out at the bottom of this pit. His death seems certain and he refuses to give up. And Mr. Smith stands there and says, why do you persist? To which Neo simply responds, because I choose to. He is willing to suffer and eventually sacrifice his life for his people. Does that sound familiar? It should. It was meant to. It's an intentional parallel to Jesus. And it confronts us with the idea of choosing suffering. Jesus is obviously willing to do the same uh, for us. So the questions I want to explore this morning are simply these. What is our reaction as Christians when we suffer? Are we simply suffering, or are we suffering biblically? There's a difference. And finally, most importantly, how does the suffering of Jesus impact how we suffer as believers? Most of you can share a thing or two about suffering. Many of you have felt like you've been under attack. Not just my family, but this whole extended church family. In the course of the past year, various families I hear this morning have suffered financial setbacks or physical injuries or health crises or emotional onslaughts. Our marriages certainly haven't been exempt, and we've endured incidents in which our children have suffered or our parents. And we've dealt with personal conflicts at home, at school, at work, and even at church. Christians suffer. On the wall of my office, I have a lot of things on the wall of of my office, but among them I have this saying that comes from uh, 1 Peter. And it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And that's important because suffering is not strange. Not at all. Suffering is simply part and parcel of the normal Christian life. In fact, suffering is common to all human experience. Believers suffer. Unbelievers suffer. The major difference comes in how we suffer. So how do we choose to react in these circumstances? Speaking personally, I know there's been times when I've just simply suffered. Feeling as I've somehow been treated unfairly. At times I reach what I felt was my limit, and I react with anger. And unfortunately, my anger is usually misdirected. Uh, Instead of getting angry with Satan, I'll get angry with God. Or I'll get angry with my family, or I'll get angry with my friends, and fall into a pattern of self-pity, and forget there's a reason for my suffering. And I forget that Christ suffered for me. And I forget the whys and the hows of his suffering. And in my own words, I may have said something like, Lord, if you can create the world in six days, why can't you get me out of this? Perhaps you've thought something similar. God chose to send Jesus to the cross and allow his suffering for a reason. He could have stopped it. Think of the suffering that Christ endured. Just take a moment and let that penetrate your thoughts. Not only was Christ beaten and bruised for our transgression, stripped, nailed to a cross, publicly humiliated, he had to endure complete abandonment. Not only by the ones who followed him, but by God himself. When Christ took on our sins, he could have stopped it. So why did he persist? Because I chose to. If he endured such suffering for us so that we could have the gift of eternal life, does that mean we should be exempt from suffering? Why would we even think such a thing? If Christ endured such misery, who are we to think that we should never suffer? Perhaps there's a reason that God chose to allow suffering in our lives as well. Maybe in our suffering we become more like Christ. Perhaps in sharing his suffering, we're demonstrating the value of what we believe. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow. Excuse me, in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, if asked, not many of us would choose to suffer. I've heard people describe other people's ministries, as a ministry of suffering. My guess is most of us don't want to put that on our resume. I don't think many of us would choose that. We'd rather have a easier way. Most likely, none of us will ever suffer as Christ did. However, if we're living for Christ, then sooner or later, we're going to endure trials and tribulations Godly living involves suffering, and we know this because Jesus suffered, not just as our example, but more specifically, he suffered for us, for you, and for me, and for this small church of Hebrew believers to whom this letter was written. As I've said before, Hebrews is a book about persevering in faith amidst suffering. It points us to the sure foundation for living the Christian life, and that is understanding the supremacy, and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Over and over, the author of Hebrews points us to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. And we need this message just as much today as anybody has needed it ever. And the author is telling them, these people who wanted to run away, who were barely hanging on, it would be easier to go back to Judaism, and he's saying, no, Jesus is better. Now in Hebrews 2, verses 5-9 through that Pastor Dorst unfolded for us last week, we saw the uh, Lord emphasize the divinity, the Lordship, the supremacy of Christ, teaching us that God placed everything under his control. Everything, even when it doesn't look like it. Even when there's things in life uh, that don't make sense. Hebrews is telling us, To trust God, everything is under the control of Jesus. It's under Jesus' feet, even when it doesn't look like it. And so now he picks up that thought in the passage before us. So turn with me to Hebrews 2, starting at verse 10, where we ask the question this is sort of mean, so it's on suffering, it's okay. It's two blanks there. Why is Jesus' suffering fitting? why is jesus suffering fitting it says starting at verse 10 for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, if you look at that transition phrase in verse 10, the very uh, first words of that verse, he says, for it was fitting that he, he's picking up on the theme of Jesus' control over all things, It's almost like he's saying, therefore, in light of the fact that God has put everything under Jesus' feet, absolutely everything, even though it doesn't always look like that, it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And this verse comes to us in in two parts, since it emphasizes that God has ordained the suffering of his Son to perfect him as Savior and to save us for glory. There's enough depth in that one verse for us to think about for the rest of our lives, and I don't think we'd be able to exhaust it. So I'm actually going to spend most of our time this morning on this first section. And The first thing I want you to see is the one who's at work here, the one at work. Ask yourself this question as you look at these first words of verse 10. Who is it at work in Jesus' suffering? And listen to what the author of Hebrews says. This will help you come to grips with your own suffering. He says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Stop right there. Look at that phrase. Now, I know when you look at that phrase, for whom and by whom all things exist, you're tempted to say, well, that's just a poetic way of saying God. God's the one who's doing something. But if you pass over too quickly, you'll miss the blessing that you need in your suffering. This verse is telling you that the one for whom and by whom all things exist is the same one who's at work in Jesus' suffering and in your suffering. And that means that your suffering has meaning. Your suffering is never without meaning. That's huge. I want you to think about that for a second. Because without God, the cruelest things that happen in this world are simply some other bad thing that happened. If there's no one from whom and by whom and for whom all things exist, then everything that happens in this world, the most obscene, cruel, terrible, horrific, horrible things are just some other bad thing that happened. If this universe has no creator for uh, whom and from whom and by whom all things exist. There's no one for whom all things exist. There's no purpose for which it exists. Then bad stuff is just bad stuff. And there's no meaning and no answer and no reason, no purpose, no rationale. And if you're an unbeliever, you have to face this. Some of you may be here today, and and perhaps there will be some listening on the podcast. So I'm glad you're here, I'm glad you're listening. But you need to understand, if there's no one God, from whom and by whom and for whom all things exist, then there's no ultimate meaning in this world. And that means when a father's holding a child who's been slain at Sandy Hook Elementary School by a madman, it means nothing. It's just some other bad thing that happened because there's no ultimate meaning. If there's not one from whom and for whom and by whom all things exist imposing, as it were, his meaning on this reality that he created, then there's no ultimate meaning. But for the believer, because there is one for whom and by whom and from whom all things exist, and the believer knows that, and because that one is at work in Jesus' suffering, we can be confident that he's also at work in ours. And we can be assured that nothing we endure is wasted. Nothing lacks purpose. Nothing is meaningless. And nothing doesn't matter to Him. The smallest thing that we're undergoing in our life is of concern to the Father. He's concerned about every iota of His people's suffering. And it's all part of His grand design because He's the one for whom all things exist. So he's now giving you the first key to grappling with trials and crises and suffering in your experience. The one who's behind everything invests everything with meaning. That's the first thing. Second, we see his gracious purpose. His gracious purpose, don't miss this phrase, still in verse 10. says, it was fitting that he, uh, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory... Now, what do we learn about the one for whom and by whom all things exist? In this little phrase, what do we learn about him and his design? We learn what he's up to. We learn what his purpose is, to bring many sons to glory. What we see in that little phrase is the gracious purpose of our Heavenly Father. We're being told that when you look at Jesus' suffering, when you look at Jesus on the cross, and you say, God... Why would you allow your son, your only son whom you love, to go through that? He says, because I want to bring you to glory. I want you to be my sons. I want you to be my children. I want you to be part of my family. I want you in my father's house. I want you to be gathered around me. And I want you to enjoy blessing and glory forever. That's why I'm doing this. And we can see him at work in Jesus' sufferings so that we can know he's up to something in our lives too. If he can use that to bring many sons to glory, is there anything he can't use? If you think in the language of Romans 8, it says there, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God has given his son in order that He might bring many sons to glory, He won't waste a single solitary episode of suffering in your life in order to bring you to glory. And that's important. And that's the second thing we need to know. Third, we see He's perfected by suffering. This is what the whole verse is driving at. Just read it without the two middle parts. It says, For it was fitting that He should make the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering. Think about that verse, we ought to just fall on our faces and worship. You will not, in this life, fully understand the depth of that sentence. You and I will never, in this world, understand how profound it is to say that Jesus was perfected through suffering. And the question the author of Hebrews is pressing home, Is simply this. How is it that God brought about this grand design of His to bring many sons to glory? The answer He gives is shocking. The answer is that He brought about this grand grand design to bring many sons to glory by making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He made the perfect even more perfect. He perfected the perfect one, Jesus I find it very interesting. In this whole passage, this one phrase is translated in a variety of ways. Uh, our English Standard Version, that's the main version uh, we use here, uh, says the founder of salvation. The New American Standard says the author of salvation. The NIV says the pioneer of our salvation. And the King James, love the language, says the captain of our salvation. So you can see the translators wrestling to do justice to the richness of this word. He's the captain, the founder, the author, and the pioneer of our salvation. And yet the most mind-blowing thing here is we're told that God perfects him through suffering. What does that mean? It can't mean that he was imperfect, and now he's perfect because he's already dispensed with that in chapter one. He's already told us that Jesus is better than anything. So how do you perfect perfection? And I think the point that's being driven home, particularly for those who are suffering, both then and now, is that he's the perfect savior for you in your suffering because he himself has been perfected in suffering. When God comes to you in the midst of your suffering, he doesn't do that from the outside. He doesn't stand way back and say, hey, uh, you out there, suffering guy, I'm going to help you. i got lots of power. Just hang on. Not at all. That's not what God does. He comes to us in our suffering. He comes inside that suffering. And he's done that in the person of his son, Jesus. You know how it is if you're going through some really rough time, maybe an excruciating experience, You know, and you have friends, people you love, and they love you. And they're going to be with you every step of the way, uh, whatever it is that you're going through. And at some point, you're talking to them. Something like this comes out. They'll say something. They're grasping for words. Usually people don't know exactly what to say. And they'll say something like, I know what you're going through is hard. And you appreciate that and those words and the hugs and the tears and them being there. But one of the things that usually goes through most people's minds is you have no idea how hard this is because you haven't gone through this. Now do you understand what the author of Hebrews is saying? Because you can never say that to Jesus. You have no idea how hard this is. Jesus can say that to you but you can never say that to Jesus. Because when you look to God and you're crying out in tears to Him for help in the middle of your suffering, He's not out there somewhere telling you to hang on. He's close to you. He's right there. He's experienced things you've never experienced. God has subjugated Satan and sin and Satan's purposes in your suffering by subjecting His Son to to suffering. And that way he exploded all of Satan's plans and designs and sin's dominion, even in your suffering. And he's won victory through what the captain of your salvation has done. That's why he's made perfect in suffering. How does God bring about his design to bring many sons to glory? Through the perfect suffering of his son. He saves you to glory. Then we go on. All that was just verse 10. We go on verses 11. Uh, So if you didn't get that as an encouraging word of what God is doing, he sort of circles around and comes at it from another angle. He says, do you understand what it means that you're united to this Savior who is perfected in suffering so you could be saved for glory? Do you understand what it means to be united to him? And then we have this amazing statement in verse 11 and then several scripture passages quoted in verses 12 and 13, and he's talking about what it means to be united to Christ. Look at verse 11. Again, another sentence I could never do full justice to. He says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. He's speaking about Jesus as the one who sanctifies us. First of all, it's interesting because the New Testament Normally, it's the Holy Spirit who's doing the sanctifying, but here it's Jesus. Simply put, it's the triune God at work. Father, Son, Holy Spirit always work together in everything they do for our salvation. So when the Holy Spirit is working for our sanctification, which is means making us holy, making us more like Jesus, then Jesus is working for our sanctification. And so here he speaks of Jesus as our sanctifier, he who sanctifies and those who who are sanctified. That's us, that's those who believe in Jesus. And he says, all have one source. mean, the author's essentially asking you, how is it that your sufferings and Jesus' sufferings are connected? What's the connection? And the connection is that Jesus is the sanctifier and in his perfect suffering, has been united to you by faith. And that's why he can come to you in your suffering from the inside. Because he's united to you by faith. You're one with him. You're united to him. You're in communion with him. So his sufferings work to your benefit and your sufferings now belong to him. That's why the Apostle Paul could write about suffering in Colossians 1. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I think that's beautiful. The sufferings of your life, the sufferings of all believers, Paul says, belong to Jesus. They're now Jesus' sufferings. They're filling up the sufferings of Christ. That's how close he is to you. And then he says at the end, very end of verse 11 here in Hebrews 2, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers. You know, on that last day when you're standing there and the accuser points his finger at you, starts to recite your sins, and he doesn't have to lie. And then Jesus is there and say, that's my brother that you're pointing to. That's my sister that you're pointing to. I would suggest you put that hand down. He calls you brother. That's how united To you he is. And then he says in verse 12, I will tell your name to my brothers. He says to God the Father, I'm going to testify about you, God the Father, to my brothers and sisters. I'm going to tell them how faithful you are in the midst of suffering because you were faithful in my suffering. And not only that, he says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. We just sang. I hope you sang. Do you ever have a Sunday where you walk away from church and say, wow, you know, I just felt like God was there, almost like I could reach out and touch him. It was so powerful, he spoke so clearly, his word was so strong, he was just there. And one reason why is that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father not only to intercede for you, to pray for you, which he does, but also because he's worshiping with you. In this congregation, on this morning, during this worship service, Christ the Lord is worshiping with you. He's worshiping God the Father with you and for you, helping you worship. That's how close he is to you. And then he says, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. In other words, Jesus saying, I had to put my trust in God. There came a day when I cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All Jesus had was the trust of God's Word. And he's telling us when you're at the end of your rope and all you can do is cry out and hang on and trust, he's saying, I've been there. I've done that. I understand. And at the very end he says, and again, behold, I. I actually looked that up. Behold's not used often. It's the exact same thing that Abraham said when God came to Abraham. And back in Genesis, he said, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham responded, Behold, I, here I am. And here Jesus is saying, Behold, I and the children God has given me. See, that ties in with what we read back in verse 10. What's God's purpose in all of this, even in our suffering? To bring many sons to glory. And at the end of time, Jesus is going to say, here they are, your children, God. I brought every single one of them home. Not one is missing. Here I am and the children that you have given me. That's how close Jesus is to us. So what's the author saying? How do we wrap all this up? He's saying, do you realize it was fitting that Jesus be the perfect Savior you need in your sufferings through his perfectly enduring suffering for you. He is so close to you that what's his is yours, and what's yours is his, including suffering. And so when you get hit out of the blue by pain or loss or suffering, the Father is saying, I made his suffering serve to bring you to glory. I make your suffering serve to bring you to glory too. Because by faith, your sufferings are now his, and I will not waste a drop of his suffering. So now that we know that Jesus suffered in order to save us, and he closely identifies with us in the midst of our suffering, we have to ask, what does Jesus' suffering accomplish? What does Jesus' suffering accomplish? Starting in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. These verses make clear that Jesus is not only close to us during uh, suffering, and he not only identifies with us during suffering, but he suffered as one of us. He became one of us, God in the flesh. God made man, God incarnate. Verse 14 says he partook of flesh and blood. Verse 17, he was made like his brothers in every respect, one who is fully God, both suffered and was tempted as a man. We see in verse 18. It's the great theme of these verses, the full humanity of Jesus in his work as the divine Savior. And assuming this truth, the writer of Hebrews draws forth the reasons why God's Son became man and uh, details the results of that for us. He highlights three great aspects of Christ's saving work. He broke the devil's hold and freed captive humanity. Second, he made propitiation for God's holy wrath against our sin. And third, he became a merciful and compassionate high priest who can help those who are suffering under the trials of temptation. So first, we need to know that he died to destroy death. He died to destroy death. Look at verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What's he mean by that? Well, he means that because we were dead in sin, enslaved to Satan, Jesus died to destroy death and to set us free. You ever wonder how far Jesus had to go? to set us free from slavery to sin and from the wages of sin, which is death. He had to go all the way through temptation, to suffering, to death, and back again. That's how far he had to go. The author of Hebrews is reminding us of that. That's how far your Savior had to go. This is the reason why Christ came into the world as a man, as a person in the flesh. His purpose is defined by two key words here in our text. The first one is destroy. Jesus came to destroy the power of a tyrant who held mankind in slavery, namely the devil. And the second word is deliver. Like Moses in the book of Exodus, which we're going to start in September, by the way, Jesus came to set his people free. It's the purpose of the incarnation. These verses show us... um, the means by which he gained this victory through his death. This is a wonderful statement of Jesus' mission in the world. If someone asks, why did Jesus come into the world? Here's the answer. He came to die that he might overthrow Satan and set people free. came to destroy and deliver. That's good news. Because the fear of death is something we still face today. How much of our busyness... Our frenzy for entertainment is mainly an attempt to divert our gaze from the shadow that death casts across all of our lives. Death is not merely an event somewhere out in the future that is waiting for us, but it's a power that rules over us even now, denying us peace and contentment. So here's the clear statement of this problem that Jesus came to solve. It's from this that he saves us not merely from unhappiness or dysfunction or failure. What we need to be saved from is far greater. This comprehensive reign of death because of sin, a reign that holds us in bondage through fear, the end of our lives afflicts us with the experience of death, and beyond our grace sees us uh, damned before the judgment throne of a holy God. Death is the problem from which we must be saved the rod of Satan's rule, the source of his laughter at our expense. And death is what Jesus overcomes by his saving work. He breaks the devil's power. He sets us free by means of his own death on the cross. Taking our sins upon himself, he endured the wrath of God that we deserve. And at the cross, Jesus saves us. 2 Timothy 1 says our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He's the champion from heaven who defeats our hellish foe by his victory on the cross. So the first thing is he died to destroy death. Second thing is he died to make propitiation. It's a big word. It's hard to pronounce. Whenever we talk about Jesus' death on the cross, we have to understand there's two parties to whom his work is directed, to the sinner, but also to God. That's why Paul writes, 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Now, we've already seen the one reason why Jesus became man, to die and free us from death. So in that sense, we're uh, the objects of his saving work. But there's a second reason, and God the Father has to be considered. Because in his holiness, he cannot accept sinful people. And verse 17 deals with that aspect of Christ's death for which God is the object. It says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This verse is the classic explanation why Christ had to become fully man. So he might perform priestly service before God on man's behalf and thus propitiate, which means to turn aside God's wrath against our sin. As the great high priest, he's clothed in his own perfect righteousness, which he presents on our behalf. He goes forth, as our representative, as our priest, our mediator, and offers his own precious blood, his divine and infinitely valuable life, which alone could atone for the sins of the world in order to pay the debt of sin. His work is one of propitiation, turning aside God's wrath from our sin. So his first purpose is directed towards us to destroy death. His second purpose is to turn aside the wrath of God. And then we're told, having done those things, we're told that He died in order to help us. He died in order to help us. He's ideally suited to help us in our struggle against temptation to sin and despair because He's been through it all. It's another great proof of Christ's humanity. He Himself has suffered when tempted. We naturally think of uh, his temptation in the wilderness at the hands of the devil. He was afflicted with great hunger, the temptation to get the crown without the cross. I'm sure those were great temptations, and Jesus overcame them by the word of God. But we shouldn't overlook this whole range of temptations to which he was exposed in his earthly existence. Mark mentioned that at the beginning of his prayer. The fact that he came here is a form of suffering and The fact that he lived here and he would have uh, temptations would have interacted with just every um, aspect of his human nature. And because of them, Jesus knows exactly what we're going through. He knows what it is to be tempted, he's experienced it himself. And our great high priest then has real sympathy and compassion for whatever it is that we're going through. Hebrews 2 shows us that Christ's suffering is to take on the nature of humanity to endure temptation so when the time comes he can empathize with us and enable us to overcome. His ultimate purpose is to destroy the devil's power, deliver us from the fear of death, and he accomplished this on our behalf so that we can have faith knowing our suffering with Christ will receive his reward. So that's a ton of doctrinal statements about Jesus and about death and the cross and everything that He has done. So what? Now that we know this, what do we do with it? Well, I have two, I think, very demanding questions. They actually look very simple. But they're very demanding. Such an overview of suffering and how they connect with the sufferings of Christ. The first is simply, how do I respond to my suffering? If you're not a fan of David Brooks, you probably should be. David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times, and I think he's hitting it out of the park on a regular basis. And last year, uh, he wrote this statement, people shoot for happiness, but they feel formed through suffering. People shoot for happiness, but they feel formed through suffering. He makes it clear that while suffering may produce good results, It's not something that we think has intrinsic good value. We cherish the results, but we never cherish the suffering. And here's what David Brooks thinks about what suffering does. He says, the big thing that suffering does is it takes you outside of that logic that the happiness mentality encourages. Happiness wants you to think about maximizing your benefits, but suffering sends you on a different course. What course? He suggests that suffering gives you opportunities that can be learned, no other way. He says it drags you deeper into yourself. It forces you to look at yourself honestly, and it sort of blows away all the self-deception. gives you a sense of your own limitations, what you can control and can't control. We learned a little bit about that last week. He says suffering people often feel a responsibility to respond well to their suffering. And he says, and this is why he wrote, the right response to pain is not pleasure, it's holiness. Coming out of the New York Times. I'm sure he's considered unique in that environment. The right response to pain is not pleasure, it's holiness. It means placing the hard experiences of life in a moral context and trying to redeem something bad by turning it into something sacred. But lest you think he portrays this sort of deepening of self into selflessness as an easy way to be healed from suffering, he reminds us, recovering from suffering is not like recovering from a disease. Many people don't come out healed. They come out different. Many people don't come out healed. They come out different. Even while experiencing the worst. He says people double down on vulnerability. They hurl themselves even deeper into their relationships with their loved ones and their commitments. Get out of that. Suffering forces us to look at ourselves honestly and then look to Jesus and finally look to others and love them back. How do you respond to your suffering? Or how do I respond to my suffering? Second question is, how do I respond to your suffering? And this is brilliant. comes from another one of his columns. He met with several families who have been through horrible, horrible suffering and loss. And he said, what worked, what didn't? And so he just sort of took notes. the first thing he said is, be there. Be there. Some people think that those people who experience suffering need space to sort things out. He says, assume the opposite. Move towards those who are suffering. Most people need your presence. Most suffering people say they're awed by the number of people who showed up and loved them, but they were disoriented by close friends who weren't there who are afraid or too busy. Second thing he says, don't compare, ever. He quotes a person who said, I understand what it's like to lose a child. My dog died, and that was hard too. How that person doesn't get hit is beyond me. Suffering needs to be respected in its own uniqueness. Each story should be heard as its own thing. Comparison always hurts. However well-intentioned, it just sounds callous. Third, he says, bring soup. I love this. I like soup. He says, the nonverbal expressions of love are just as healing as the right words. He, he tells a story of one person said during her uh, very long recovery, a young friend of hers noticed that she didn't have a bath mat in her bathroom, so he went to Target and got her a bath mat. And she says, of all the things that people did, that's what she remembered. They just went and got her a bath mat. And lastly, he says, don't say, you'll get over it. There's no such thing as getting over it. A major disruption leaves a new normal in its wake. There's no going back to the old me. And I think, and these are my words now, this is especially true for the elderly. Every change brings a new normal. Every change brings a new normal. New prescriptions, new normal. Take the car away, a new normal. Need a walker, a new normal. And so all of these suffering experiences call for sort of a passive activism on our part. What I mean by that is we have a tendency in a achievement-oriented culture of Northern Virginia. We want to solve problems and repair brokenness, and so we think we propose, plan, fix, interpret, explain, solve. And What's really needed here is the art of presence. To perform tasks without trying to control the situation or change the situation. Just allow nature to take its course. Grant the sufferers the dignity of their own process, let them define meaning, sit simply through moments of pain and darkness, be practical, mundane, simple, and direct. I have a slide for you. See, there's a PCA pastor out west whose wife is dying from breast cancer. Now, I know here at Potomac Hills, we have a number of cancer survivors, but this woman isn't going to be one of them. Her name is Kara Tippett. Her blog is called Mundane Faithfulness. And she writes about the process of dying and all that Jesus is teaching her along the way. And her suffering is intense. And her stories are amazing. And she will make you cry. And the name of her blog comes from a Martin Luther quote. What will you do? What will you do in the mundane days of faithfulness? What will you do in the mundane days of faithfulness? Her husband, Jason, is another PCA pastor. He recently wrote this. He said, and for those that aren't familiar with Kara, Uh, She is a very advanced stage four breast cancer. It's spread everywhere. It's in her brain. She has chosen to go home to die. They've basically stopped everything at this point. They didn't expect her to live till January. So it's a a really difficult situation. Intense suffering. And Jason wrote, he's very honest. He says, I find even simple questions complicated How are you? Used to be easy to answer. Fine, was the answer I could always give. And that just doesn't make sense anymore. Can we meet for lunch Tuesday? What time do you want dinner? Is this your sock? So, Well, that last one is simple, but my answer is, I don't care. Every decision is like digging in the sand. The energy it takes for simple things is overwhelming. Most of the time I'm okay with questions, but sometimes I don't have the energy to dig in the sand. I appreciate my community waiting patiently as I find an answer for them, which many times is an answer for me. The gentle patience of my community is healing. Their willingness to walk this with me is encouraging. Psalm 73 says, you hold my right hand, and today that's enough. He asked, Do you wrestle with the mundane in the middle of your suffering? Do simple tasks frustrate you that were once easy? How are you today, friends? How is your heart? Two days ago, just on Friday, Kara wrote this Where are you finding encouragement in Scripture? Where do you keep people at a distance, afraid to let them see your suffering? What part is protection and what part is self-preservation? Who do you let really see you? Who do you let really see you? And I want to ask her, why do you persist? And I know Kara would simply respond, because I choose to. Last week she wrote, "My hope is not in the absence of suffering and comfort returned. My hope is in the present." Can't look at anybody who's crying; it gets me off. I gotta find somebody who's not crying. It says, "My hope is not in the absence of suffering and comfort returned. My hope is in the presence of the One who promises never." to leave, or forsake. The one who declares that nothing can separate you from my love. So, with that said, let me ask you. Why do you persist? Why do you persist? Think about that question. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll get it together, and then I'll pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we could see our sin and see our Savior. Help us to believe what you teach us here in your Word. Help every brother and sister here this morning who are suffering, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever. Help them to trust you. Help us to answer the question, why do we persist? Drive these truths into our hearts. And make our hearts believe, no matter what's going on in our lives, that Jesus is better. Amen. Receive God's blessing. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. God bless you. We'll see you next week.